What's going on, everybody? Scuba Steve here, and I'm just wondering, are y'all subscribed to the Patreon? If not, what are you waiting for? We upload about three to four episodes a week on our Patreon, and we got a whole bunch of content that you guys are missing out on, man. So make sure you guys go to the link tree on our bios, on our Twitter, and on our Instagram, and you can find all of our stuff that will lead you to our Patreon and to our merch store. Go get you some socks, t-shirts, something. Yeah, man. Gotta go get some gear. But uh, let's get the show started. You either die a hero, or you live long enough to see yourself become the villain. You are now listening to Inside the Mind of the Moon. Welcome to another episode of Inside the Mind of a Blurred. We are having another interview today. My name is Scuba Steve, and I am joined by my co-host today, Double O. And we will be interviewing the creator, CEO, writer, Chris Hill of Rapture Purpose. Go ahead and uh, introduce yourself, Chris. Yeah. Uh, yeah, my name is Chris Hill. Um, I am the writer, self-publisher, creator of Rapture Burgers. Um, it's an, uh, an original graphic novel or manga series about a high school student who is destined to conquer the world. Um, and, uh, you know, we say it's a little bit like Pinky in the Brain if Pinky were in charge. Okay. okay. Yeah, I, I like that. I was thinking like, man, this is going to be, this sounds like a crazy story. <laughs> if, <laughs> if Pinky's in charge of world domination, it's going to be. <laughs> yeah. And it's, uh, it, you know, that's how it starts very simply as like this high school kid who got broken up with um, and starts to hear voices as you do um, sort of wakes up and is like, ah, I know I'm going to conquer the world, but how do you do that? So it's like, baby steps to maybe I got to conquer the, um, the school science fair or, you know, like try to, maybe, maybe I'm trying to infiltrate a company that I think is secretly trying to compete with me in world domination. And so it sort of becomes a sprawling, uh, kind of epic across this like post-apocalyptic world of Camille failing his way upwards and like leaving a trail of destruction behind him as he does it. Mm -hmm. Um, we just say like this kind of goes places instead of just being like, and every episode he fails and nothing happens, and we're all <laughs> fine with that. Fair enough. So the character Camille, um, how did you come up with that idea for like a uh, kind of like a Pinky <laughs> taking over uh, the character? Man, this goes way back. Like, uh, so I graduated high school in like two thousand four. So it's it's been a minute, but. Like okay. right after high school, um, I had a, I had this girlfriend that I dated um, through the end of high school, a little bit after, and somehow there became this running joke that I was going to conquer the world because I was mm -hmm. one of those like 
sort of depressed, angry, um, not very friendly teenagers. Mm-hmm. But um, I sort of started to open up when we started dating and my opening up became sort of like uh, maniacal megalomania, I guess, where I was like, you know, I'll show, I'll show the world. Um, and uh, so that just turned into a running gag. And so uh, a f- my, my friend from high school, Adam, who is a co-writer on all of Rapture Burgers, uh, he and I started to talk about like, we want to make a web comic. Like, you know, this was a peak of web comics. Um, man, the video game cats type of thing and Penny mm-hmm. Arcade was obviously big, but there's a whole bunch of other stuff too that was just huge at the time. And like uh, Mega Tokyo was was also like in print and um, Scott Pilgrim was also big at the time. Okay. But anyway, we, we were like, you know, we want to make a web comic and what will it be about? And I was like, oh, you know, we got this joke that I'm going to conquer the world. So why don't we like spin that off? Um, except I don't want the main character to look anything like me at all. And uh, a little bit in the Sydney character looks almost exactly like my friend Adam and has maintained that look basically throughout the entire process. But uh, we started to write for a webcomic and it was like um, four panels evolved into individual pages. And we got really good at writing like punchlines at the end of individual pages. And um, so we wrote that. And then one of my siblings uh, was like aspiring to be an artist so we had them start to draw up uh, character designs and stuff and, you know, do try to do little mini comics and gags. And uh, it didn't really take off for a long time, but the, like the core concepts came from me. Like Camille, sometimes when we're writing Camille, like when Adam especially writes him, I'm like, you're just writing me from high school. Like you're not even trying. <laughs> like, <laughs> I recognize that. Uh, but, you know, it's also... Um, it evolved a lot more into, well, okay, Camille wants to conquer the world, but I don't want this to be like pinky in the brain episodic, nothing happens. So how do I, how do I make that into something? And so we started to talk about like, well, what world does he live in? Like what thematic elements can we add into the world? But also how can we give him a world where it's possible for him to ascend to power? And so you're like, okay, a post-apocalypse. Um, and I'm sort of a sci-fi nerd and I read a lot of like classic sci-fi novels like Asimov and Arthur C. Clarke uh, for a while there. And so I, I really like the idea of space elevators and how do I integrate that into the story? Um, but as we built the world up, you know, there was an acknowledgement that I'm making a story about a character who's a little bit based on me, but just a little bit and has become like escalated into this crazy person who were like, you know, we want him to be able to conquer the world. But there's an acknowledgement that like, he couldn't be black because if you saw a black character start to do that, immediately our minds would go to, nah, nah. <laughs> <laughs> An outlandish black kid like suddenly standing up threatening the world. Nah, that that's not what's gonna happen. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. So I leaned more into like, all right, he's gotta be different. He's gotta be that that kid where everybody says he's harmless nobody thinks that he's capable of doing anything and they Mm -hmm. just brush off all of the crazy shit that he like tries to do or talks about doing because they're like "Ah, he's harmless yeah Um, it shows you what they can get away with kind (laughs) of yeah and obviously like our social situation just continued to play into it and even Mm -hmm. the idea of like 
a bumbling idiot who has no has no place being in power somehow getting into power i was like oh man I wasn't trying to make this about like real life politics, but look what happened. <laughs> but look, it makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it definitely makes sense. So it became more relevant over the years because I was like, this was a, a Bush administration era thing that I came up with. This is not, <laughs> Trump wasn't even in my mind at the time, you know? <laughs> and, and look how it came, it came back full circle. <laughs> Yeah, but, um, it almost feels bad like to see that happen where you're like, man, now people are going to think it's about that. And I, that, that's not at all what it was about. Hey, I, I know those type of things because like you, you're telling the story and you're like, this is where I was going with it. And then a real life situation happens that's kind of similar. And you're like, oh, God. <laughs> but yeah, it's, like, it's going to seem like a commentary. And I'm like, you know, what? it was a commentary on the whole concept to start mm -hmm. with. And the fact that real life proved the point. Is it, mm -hmm. you know, I can't help that. That was always the case. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was, it was always something, but now it's kind of shining a light on it now with, you know, everything that's going on in the world today. Yeah, yeah I understand. Um, Double O, did you want to get a question in before I jump to another one? <clears throat> you can go ahead. Oh, okay. So um, Camille is, in a sense, uh, anti-hero, villain from that perspective. So since we're kind of touching on that for a second, before we go to our next like big question, um, who are some of your favorite villains, anti-heroes in fiction? Doesn't have to necessarily be anime manga. It could just be in fiction in general. Yeah, that's a good question. He's a little bit modeled after, um, well, not actually at all modeled. Like uh, if you remember Excel Saga, that, mm -hmm. um, a little bit of commonality of like a wacky sci-fi comedy about somebody trying to conquer the world. Mm -hmm. But um, like Il Palazzo and that was more, I'm going to sit on my throne and send you off to do my bidding. Mm -hmm. uh, but Excel, if you count her as like a villain anti-hero who's trying to do his bidding, like I was a big fan of Excel, uh, you know, way back when, where I was like, you know, she's sort of fun. And obviously like the brain from Pinky and the Brain uh -huh. uh, is, is up there <laughs> <laughs> you know, there were great episodes of that where like Pinky actually got all the world leaders together and like we've got to hand brain the key to world domination and then he messes it all up. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and uh, you know, other various fun sort of schemes. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I watched a lot of Bleach too, and Eisen was a good villain, even though he didn't. He's one of those smug guys, like. It's all according to my plans. Yeah. And, <laughs> Everything yeah. was made by this. It, I, I created you. <laughs> yeah. And it's funny because it's like there's a lot of those villains who are villains because they're so smart and they're so scheming and they plan so far in advance. And I'm like, yeah, that ain't Camille. <laughs> did not plan anything in advance. <laughs> I like those villains, but um, they become very menacing and very scary because you're like, ah, oh, you don't even know what he had planned. You don't even know, like, what the next thing is. Mm -hmm. And uh, they're good examples of, like, what I'm trying not to do. Because um, it, it's like you have to acknowledge that if you want some people to follow this character, even if he's trying to do something bad, you want him to be sort of sympathetic and sort of funny to watch at least. Yeah. Um, and in that way, I'm like, I, I'm a big Simpsons fan. So Homer 
at times is basically a villain where he's <laughs> you're like, why am I cheering for this guy who is like a total idiot? But at the end of the day, he has heart and, you know, he loves his family. Um, man. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking too hard about it because I'm like, I like Gundam. So Char is like a great like Char oh, is like up there in terms of villain who has justifiable reason for what he's doing and becomes like a protagonist for a little while, but then goes back to like, I guess I'm just going to murder everybody. Mm -hmm. um, and so. that's one of those cases where it's like Gundam has a lot of gray area villains, a lot of gray area politics where they're like, not to say like both sides or anything, but they, it likes to depict that, like the colonies, for example, were fighting for independence from the Earth government who were like ruling them from afar and stuff like that. And that it was there are bad factions within both groups who are like, let's commit mass murder because, you know, <laughs> that's to reach our end goal. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, Shar for sure is probably my top. Like, that's the guy that I go to. Of like, yeah, I understand yeah. you. Uh, I like that. And then like they, they're always um they have good intentions in some way and then they just go over the edge. Yeah, it's a, good intentions spiraled into the wrong execution. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We uh I like that because I know even though I guess it's not good intentions, but it is a light yagami. It's like I want to get rid of all the bad people, and then all yeah, of a sudden, yeah. it's like you're trying to get you're trying to get in the way of me getting in killing bad people, so I'm kill you too. And then that's when it just starts going right. crazy. So, it's a slippery yeah. slope of like, <laughs> and I think that's something. Um, like if you look at Star Wars, where it's at least the original trilogy, obviously mm -hmm. it's like fairy tale ish sci-fi fantasy, and it's about black and white evil versus good. Resistance is gonna like win. Um, but it didn't until later, it didn't really introduce like that idea of like gray area or you could reform people who were on the, the empire side or anything like that. Um, and you know, if you have like puppy kicking villains who are like, we explode entire planets and kill entire populations just because then you're like, well, you can't, you can't justify that. You can't sympathize with that. Dio. Dio Brando. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, there's a lot of Japanese media that wants to give you that perspective of like Attack on Titan, for example. Like, we're talking about anti heroes. Like, Aaron is like a villain. By the end of it. You're like, oh, so you want like genocide, genocide. Like, you're not even joking. <laughs> I like uh, a genocide, genocide. <laughs> another one I like uh, is Walter White. Walter White started off. I, I need to get this money for my family. I got right. cancer, and then it just it, it dove into like a spiral of I'm the kingpin, and even though I have enough money for everybody to be secure, I just don't want to give up my throne now. And it was just like okay, yeah, <laughs> so, and, and that's a comparison where it's like we have more of these stories now about this is a person who started with good intentions, or at least what they believed to be good intentions, mm -hmm. and you're watching their world spiral into darkness and then become the villain of the story. But because you watched them from the beginning and because you understood their circumstances at the start, you still follow them and are maybe a little sympathetic to the cause. Um, and sometimes it's hard to get people to acknowledge, like, you know, Bojack Hor Horseman, the point is that Bojack is the bad guy. Like, 
Yeah. He's not a good person. <laughs> yeah. He's not a oh, good yeah. person at all. <laughs> and As, you're watching him spiral out of control and abuse the people around him and hurt everybody. Mm-hmm. And you and like same with Rick and Morty. Like you're not supposed to want to be Rick. You're not supposed to be want to be you're not supposed to want to be like Bojack. You're like yeah. supposed to understand and like watch, but that sort of rooting for them because they're the protagonists. So it's right. Like... <laughs> and I think that's and I think it's good that media challenges people that way to to say like we're gonna show you a perspective that maybe you wouldn't believe in yourself and you wouldn't follow, but we're trying to make the point that this is wrong and that we're not excusing or saying that they're doing the right thing. Um and yeah, so it, like even going back to Attack on Titan, I still find that very interesting because I was like, "Oh wow, no, he <laughs> he went like full on villain. villain. His friends yeah. have to unite to stop him, villain." Even um, one movie that I feel like I knew that they were wrong and I knew that they were doing bad things the entire movie, but for some reason I found myself like, "Ooh, are they going to get away?" And it was the um, Pain and Game with Mark Wahlberg and The Rock. And they basically, they like kidnap a dude and they're like literally trying to get him to sign over all his money, but it's supposed to be like a comedy in a sense. So you're like rooting for him. And then at the end, you're like, oh, they're about to go to jail because, (laughs) and you're like, oh, they're going to get away and stuff like that. And I'm like, I can't believe I'm rooting for these dudes that literally kidnapped the dude and made him sign over like all his money and all this stuff. And I was kind of rooting for him. And I was like, it's crazy how they they do that and they tell the story from that perspective. And yeah, it's like, um, yeah, because you know we have the trope of like the hero's journey, mm-hmm. um, where it's like, ah, uh, you know, this nobody comes from nothing and like has to to face his destiny and become the person who saves the world, and they have to accept their calling. But mm-hmm. for me, like especially with Rapture Burger, it's like, yeah, what if the chosen one was like. The dude who was like, you know, no, I'm going to conquer the world. Like, that's my <laughs> destiny. That's the thing that I'm going to do. And I'm going to go through the hero's journey of, like, being saved by forces beyond my control, being guided by forces that I don't understand to become the villain. That's mm-hmm. that's sort of the story. Yeah. The boys and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah. That's another one where it's like, wow. <laughs> but uh, Danny? So uh, a question that I had was, um, so when you're talking about Camille, you talk about, uh, so Camille's, uh, because he can't conventionally like rise to power, you know, the way a regular, uh, whatever you want to call him, an antagonist, a villain, uh, or just someone that's trying to find their way. Uh, but I love and locked onto the word um, failing forward. Yeah. Uh, can you talk more yeah. about uh, what that means? Yeah, failing upwards is is kind of a fun idea because, again, if you go back to Pinky and the Brain, like at the end of every episode, they fail. They're foiled by something. Mm-hmm. And so their progress is reset. But what if like you failed, but somehow it still progressed you forward. And, you know, for example, you get kidnapped, which is a setback. But somehow through being kidnapped, you accidentally burn down the entire place and get saved by somebody who is putting you in a better position, giving you a better option for like reaching your goal. Uh, So it's like, despite Camille's failures and idiocy, somehow he continues to progress forward towards his goal 
and and it, it goes back to that sort of destiny thing because heroes do this where they're like you know ah we're down to the wire the hero's about to lose and then suddenly the 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 act of god or the 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 friend comes in and swoops in and saves them and we count that as a victory and so they they progressed forward and they became stronger more powerful or the secret transformation that they didn't know they had happens (laughs) and you know in a way that is that is failing upwards where they didn't like the main character didn't do anything to like win necessarily. They just, yeah, we call it an ass pull sometimes in, yeah. in media. <laughs> like, oh, cool. Yeah. And you know, he just had like his mother's sword or whatever hidden and it's super overpowered. Uh, so I mean, and less magical, less, uh, if you remove the magic and the superpowers and stuff, um, which is something that I wanted to do with Rapture Burgers, where I was like, yeah, okay, sure, I can make it a supervillain where there's, like, superpowers and he gets, like, falls into a vat of acid and somehow becomes, like, a crazy strong person or whatever. But mm-hmm. what if instead it is it is that idea of, like, it is destined to happen uh, and sort of, like, if you do time travel movies where somebody goes back in time and tries to change something, it is destined to happen and they can't stop it from happening. Oh, yeah. And, um, oh, yeah. But it is it is also fun to just have, like, uh, this is the main character who gets punched in the face sometimes and just mm-hmm. sort of fails because he's not very good at it. Mm. It's like getting to have your cake and eat it too, where you're like, but I want the fun shenanigans of <laughs> it all goes up in a terrible flame. And, you know, he he has to like accept that he failed, but then also, eh, but actually things are moving in his favor. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I like that. It, it, it reminds me of um, Megamind. How oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's just like he's tried so hard, but it's like <laughs> just keeps failing. But um, so you said um that you've been working on this story for quite some time. Um, would you say two thousand four, four or five? Yeah, four or five. Okay, so how has that journey been? Because that's eighteen years, almost twenty years now. Yeah, so how has that journey been as far as like the struggle of like? Man, is this gonna work out? This, this, and that, and keep pushing forward, even though, you know, what I'm saying you feel like it's not taking off, or you just believing in yourself that it is going to take off and everything like that. So, how has that overall journey been? Yeah, so it it did start, um, you know, right after high school or so, and I go that far back because um, a little bit of the seed for the story that became all of Rapture Burgers was like this text document that I wrote on my desktop way back then. I just like wrote the ending of a story because I felt like I have the ending of a story and it's a tragic ending. And, you know, I know that these two characters are involved, but I have no idea how the story starts, what the middle is, how we get there. I just know how it ends. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so that sat around for a long time. And then we had our idea for the web comic and all that. And we, spent like a couple years very slowly getting artwork for that but it never really came to fruition uh and then i think i just like kicked the idea around for a few years before um uh ultimately like we did submit to publishers uh some of the art that like my sibling drew it got rejected of course um you know so we we had a few years where we were like ah we're trying to prepare for publishers can you finish those two chapters we asked you to finish like three years ago and um but while that was happening i started to think more and more about like what is the actual story to this 
And um, so that ending that I had written down, I started to form into like, okay, well, what if what if this is Rapture Burgers? What if this is like starts with this story of this alternate universe version of me trying to take over the world and it evolves into this big, big, big story. And uh, so I started to write text documents, which is like backstory of the world, like mm -hmm. the setting, the world building, uh, the history of characters that I was coming up with. And, um, you know, I'm originally from Oklahoma. I, I, I had moved to Texas and uh, with a couple of friends, I was starting to like um, throw the ideas around uh, just like brainstorming in their living room with some friends like, oh, what if this, what if that? And, you know, it's that, that sort of thing where you're a little young and your friends are like, ooh, what if I appeared as a cat girl? Or one of your friends is like, oh, what if I have like one of those bags of holding where I can pull a giant hammer out? And I was like, nah, that's not the story I'm trying to tell. And so, um, you know, I, I pitched that around, kicked around. We maybe got uh, updated art in that time frame. And um, then in 2012, I moved out to California. And within a year, I had found on Craigslist, actually, uh, this uh, small indie comics event that only happened once um, that, that was like speed dating for an artist. Um, so the artists would were uh, sitting at tables and the writers would come through with their ideas, look at the portfolio, and then maybe you agree on something. And um, I met the original artist for Rapture Burgers, like the graphic novel that I actually published and released in like 2012 or 2013. Um, and uh, their name is Mimi Alves. And um, the funny thing about that is our, our manga assistant, Mimi, uh, her name is actually Camille, like the main character, but she goes Ooh. by Mimi, which is the <laughs> name of the previous artist for Rapture Burgers. So it's very confusing. <laughs> so when y'all have a conversation, you got to be very direct. <laughs> yeah. Well, and in fact, I, I call her Cammy because I'm like, nah, I'm not, I'm not dealing with that confusion. Um, but Mimi Alves was our, uh, the artist that we paired up with. And for about six years, like we were like cranking it out, like working hard, um, like got two volumes physically printed. I got ISBN numbers. I exhibited at, um, it used to be Kamikaze in LA, but now it's LA Comic-Con. Mm -hmm. um, I exhibited a few years there. I was shucking books. And part of the learning process of doing a convention for me was that our first day was horrible um, because we just like laid out a stack of books on the table and sat in our chairs and we're like, <laughs> you want it? Come you on. want it? <laughs> and no, people people don't respond to that. There's too much stuff going on. So mm. we, we quickly figured out, like, on the second day, I think maybe with some advice from one of the other exhibitors, is that we stopped sitting down, we stood up, and I started to carnival bark at people like, hey, do you like world domination? Do you mm. like pinky in the brain? <laughs> um, and I would draw people's attention. And then mm. as soon as they walked over, we would shove a book in their hand. Mm. And, like, they yeah. started to flip through it. And that was the only way we sold books. Like, we, you know, started to do pretty decently. Um, and then... You know, in the background, we just continued to work on like the second volume and revisions for the first volume if they were needed. And we cranked out a second volume and also exhibited that and sold some of them at um, at Kamikaze. And I also did Long Beach Comic Con, but they're a little less friendly to indie comics. I think um, okay. they have they have a little more of that like mainstream big two feel to them. Um, and uh, so anyway, 
you know, after that, we continue to work on like our third volume and we did finish it. Uh, but around that time, uh, Mimi, the artist um, for the original version, uh, was doing animation work and started to get a little busier. And we sort of we were working on the fourth volume. We got like, I don't know, 50 pages into it and they had to go off and like do other stuff. But by then, it was probably 2015, 16 or 17, somewhere in there. I had contacted an animation studio, uh, like an American animation studio, to say, hey, what I really want is to make this into an animated series. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I've got some bonus money or I've got some leftover money from, like, selling the house that I had. I want to make this into a, a pilot. And actually mm-hmm. what I reached out to them for was, like, a music video or an opening sequence. Like, a minute and a half. That's it. Nice. Yeah. And uh, we got to talk in and um, the sort of director and CEO of that animation company, you know, he responded to it and he was like, ah, oh, well, you know, let's try to make it like a five minute short. And I was like, okay, well, you know, let's try, I'll, I'll write something up. Um, and we did some work on it and we started trying to find people we could pitch it to. Uh, we started going to like events in West Hollywood. We went to Cannes Film Festival. We, we really started to try to push it around and like meet people and, and get it made. But at some point, the decision was made like, ah, but we should just make this into a full-on pilot. And, of course, I'm paying out of pocket for all of this. And, um, you know, we sort of came to an agreement where it was like, it is not the top priority. It won't get done quickly. But Mm -hmm. if we do it consistently over time, then, you know, hopefully it'll get done. And um, so we, we got an animatic for a pilot made and we got segments of it fully animated. Uh, and we like got uh, a couple, we got one sort of notable voice actor on it whose name I don't think I can technically say because he would get in trouble with his agent. But, um, uh, understandable, yeah. understandable. Yeah. But, uh, we with Ani Unbox. Ani Young We did go to the talent agencies and we pitched to one of the talent agencies to say, like, hey, if you could put somebody on it and put some some smaller people on it, that, that would be great. Um, but there's a lot of conflicting interests with some of these guys where they're like, yeah, you know, I'm actually trying to get into event planning. And mm. it sort of spirals out of control where, like, um, you know, they have their hands on a lot of different things. And so they get distracted by those things. And so I became, like, very low priority. Mm. And... We just didn't, we weren't making traction. And I also wasn't super happy with where the pilot went because the, the sort of working together, getting the guidance about what should be featured in the pilot, what aspects of the whole concept. Because sometimes people get consumed by, oh, this is a big story. There's a lot of stuff involved in this. There's like the sort of futuristic cyberpunk, there's like wasteland, there's romance, you know, there's some action mixed in there. There's some like, wacky time multiverse shenanigans mixed in there i'm like yeah 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 yeah, yeah. but like let's focus on the core concepts here yeah uh so unfortunately like the pilot became a little bit of a mess because there was just too much stuff trying to be crammed into it mm-hmm. um and i wasn't super happy with the way the writing went and um so it, it, we just sort of fizzled out eventually on that and i uh mm-hmm. then connected up with um uh brendan hay who is a uh, a producer He's, he's like one of the, the uh, co-creators and executive producers of that Gremlins animated show. He also did uh, 
Harvey nice. Street Kids and the Crudes for Netflix. And he's he's a super nice, super good guy. And um, a couple years ago, because all that animation stuff led up to like three years ago uh, when I started to go like, I don't think that's going to go anywhere. I want to I want to find a different route in to try to pitch this. And so Brendan and I uh, connected and, you know, we actually did get in and pitch it to Warner Brothers uh, into two different divisions. And we were set up to pitch to DreamWorks and we were trying to get into Cartoon Network. But we also developed some other concepts besides Rapture Burgers because I'm like, well, you know, I sort of understand that this is in a little like young adults or like like anime type of, of range. But I also have like concepts for a children's show or other young adult shows. And one of them, uh, let, let me just throw this one at you. Um, giant robots on the moon playing football that are like piloted mechs. <laughs> wow. Okay. That's like, interesting. That's that's a that's elevator pitch. And I was like, mm-hmm. we we fleshed it out a bit and like got some key art made for it, but we never got around to pitching it to anybody. Mm-hmm. Um, but we also like may like came up with a pitch with our art and everything and a pilot script for like a family comedy. So, you know, I spent a lot of time doing things besides Rapture Burgers as well. Um, but then I decided like, you know what? I want to go back to comics, but I want to do it the way that I always wanted to do it, which is as manga, like with the level of detail and this kind of storytelling and using some of the tropes that we expect. That's what I really want to do. And it also allows me to completely rewrite the whole thing because, you know, when you write something when you're like 19, if you, if you could go yeah, back. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 I, I already know. You don't even have to explain. <laughs> and like, the story definitely grew beyond uh, the way I was originally writing it because we weren't willing to commit to telling a serious story throughout the entire first volume of the original graphic novel. Uh, so it was, it, it seemed like it wasn't going anywhere. The entire first volume of the original was just about like dealing with Camille's breakup and coming to terms with it. And yeah, he was trying to conquer the world, but it was more of that episodic, nothing's going to happen. Mm-hmm. And um, we had a fan come to, to us at a convention and look over to a friend and say, oh yeah, this is a comic where it seemed like nothing was going to happen. And then it totally does. And I was like, uh, yeah, that's my bad. You know, <laughs> you know, I can say that it was a little bit planned that we were trying to catch you off guard. Um, and it's still a little bit true that the goal is we want to bring you in with comedy and lightheartedness and then evolve into a more serious story and have you invested in the character, interested in what's going to happen. And yeah, like there is an anchor to Camille's relationship with Rose who broke up with them and... um like how does he come to terms with that like is there there's a little bit of will they won't they and that was one of the things that especially the animation uh, director lashed on to is like ah but we need that like romance aspect or we need that like very relatable just got broken up with aspect and i'm like yeah i get that but you also understand that if i focus too much on it um it loses the point of the rest of it or it becomes like so he's getting revenge against his ex-girlfriend in that like you know, you can't <laughs> condone that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so anyway, um, this all all culminating into 
um, what I decided I want to do as a manga, I started to reach out to, um, I started to look around. I found this site called Skillots, which is specifically for uh, foreigners finding Japanese uh, creative people to make things. And um, on there, I found Pepper. And I found some other folks too. Like I found somebody who was very good at mechanical designs. I had uh, like three or four different people do test pages of like, do this in manga style. And some of them didn't understand the assignment. They thought I wanted another American looking comic. So they did their best to make it look like American. Mm. I was like, nah, that's not, not what I'm asking. That's not what I'm asking, yeah. And so yeah. Pepper understood it and drew uh, Camille and Alex. Alex is like our second main character who I don't, again, it gets complicated. So I, I try to focus on Camille. But anyway, mm. she drew, uh, I mean, they drew um, both of those characters in that style. And I was like, yeah, that's exactly what I'm looking for. Um, and over like two years or so, we we started to make a pipeline and work together mm -hmm. and redesign characters, work on backgrounds, uh, get things translated because Pepper doesn't speak that much English. Mm -hmm. um, and um, also a little bit of me is starting to understand what the manga pipeline looks like versus American comics pipeline. Because uh, okay. it's surprisingly different. Hmm. How and, go ahead and explain. We, I like yeah. that. <laughs> so American comics, um, especially if you're working on the big two or any of, of like the traditional way we do them, normally it goes, you have a penciler and then like an inker and then maybe a colorist and maybe a special effects person on top of that. And they're all separate people unless you're like a really indie comics person who does everything. And um, manga is done, they have the assistance concept. And um, in fact, I had offered Pepper like, oh, I could find somebody to do inking for you. No, 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 absolutely mm -hmm. not. Like, why would I trust somebody that I, you know, I haven't trained and doesn't understand my style to like ink over my sketches and stuff. Mm -hmm. So our process became um, a very rough, you could call it like thumbnail, but very, very rough sketch. And then a cleanup sketch and you know, these two are to give me a lot of time to say, ah, oh, that's not working. That angle doesn't work or we should add more panels. Uh, and then Pepper goes in and does the inking. Uh, but an assistant might be able to be trained to do that, but it'll take a long time to get an assistant up to speed on that. Uh, mm -hmm. But then there's like the background phase as well, which uh, a lot of backgrounds are pushed off on assistants. And, um, you know, then there's like the shading, which could be the black, black toning. And then there's the actual like screen toning of everything that goes on top of it. But there's a focus on making everything sort of unified to look like it was the same artist, um, to look like it's Pepper's like strokes that are finishing the characters. And there's also like a difference in American comics are more like a frame from a movie is how it's described. Yeah. Like yeah. a still scene from a movie, but manga is supposed to convey more motion and more action happening than is actually drawn. So like the sound effects in manga are like, Japanese has a lot of onomatopoeia that just don't make sense to me. Like they <laughs> make sense, but like, how am I supposed to know that staring at somebody makes the sound G? Like it doesn't make sense. <laughs> yeah. But this is all stuff that gets conveyed on the page and you start to realize like, oh, you can communicate a lot of things from a single panel and and like yeah it is drawn more of we're thinking about deformation of like 
a character in motion, like punching. And so there's a lot of little details. That I'm like, I appreciate this more. And also, man, it takes so long. It takes a long time. <laughs> takes a long time i do understand and so that. this is why you have like teams of like oh we have five assistants what do they do well one of them is on background duty one of them is on like cleaning up the characters or drawing props one of them is just like screen toning or inking and uh, it's less like i think of american comics as like a production line where it moves down the line the next person works on it but manga is a little more of like a collectivist people contribute parts to it, but you want it to look completely unified. Like the single artist did it. And oh. I think the way they credit people is similar. Cause like on the front of a book, like one punch man, there's only one name for the artist. Yeah. Yusuke Murata. <laughs> yeah. And then you go in and you're like, not even pencilers or anchors. It's, Oh, I want to say thanks to my five assistants. And I don't even tell you what they did. They, they just worked on it. Yeah. It's so crazy how they do that. But, I mean, I guess that comes with the business of like, you know what I'm saying? When people feel like, oh yeah, I'm the big name and then you guys helped and you guys are going to get here to my level, but right. You know, and it's like an apprenticeship in Japan where it's like, you are being trained to do the, the things that the main artist is doing. You're being trained to be able to do them so you can go off and be the main artist yourself. Mm -hmm. yeah. And um, assistants are also sort of part-time where they're like, they might be helping five different artists and they just need them for like three days that month. And so they get paid a daily rate for, for that. Uh, it's a very interesting system. You know, it, it worked for Japanese media. They, they crank out a lot of manga, so Fact. I can't say they're wrong or anything. It works. <laughs> this is true. Um, I had a question for you. So um, I said, I'm here taking notes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so one of the things that was really interesting to me is about people's different takes on marketing. Um, mm -hmm. For yourself, what would you say was the most important part of marketing? Both, and I mean, it's both in like when it comes to promotion, social media wise, um, or how were you touched upon uh, when you were at a con? And it's one of those things where you also kind of have to feel certain things out if it's the first time you ever did them. Um, because like you said, sometimes uh, getting a table at a con, you're just like, that's step one. All right, I'm going to sit here. Yeah, see if you can stop by my table. Um, so what part of marketing do you believe for yourself is like something for yourself that was very important and that people should probably put a little more focus on? I think it's just being flexible and adjustable because I, to be honest, like marketing is my least favorite part of anything. Like I can make something, I can just go make it. But you really, you have to realize that if you just dump something out on the internet, nobody will notice it. Like, it's, there's just too much stuff competing for attention. And, you know, there's, I, I think probably the most important part of marketing you realize is that there's a personal touch. People are more likely to buy something from you if they get to know something about you, if they learn about you, they see you, you talk to them. Because part of the con thing, it wasn't that I would yell out to people and they would immediately buy the book because they wouldn't. Uh, it was that I would talk to them and like, as they're flipping through, like react to if they were laughing at something or try to feel out like which pitch is, is working better for them. But um, there's also the question sometimes at conventions about like, how much do I charge for this? And like, everybody has a different answer that's right for them. And ultimately it is like, you want to make back your cost. 
but like right. marketing can cost money. Like if you have to pay for online ads um, with, and if you're paying for online ads, I'm like, do some clever ad copy. People will respond more to that. Um, but you, you want to make back the cost of what you put into it ideally. And so that might, to me, that I mean, like, I got to charge $30 a book for this, mm. but do people feel like it's worth it? Like, do you have the confidence in your product to really push it for that much money? And I think having confidence in your product is probably the number one thing about marketing that was hard for me. And um, I, I am more of the kind of person who doesn't want to bother people. I don't want to harass anybody to like mm. buy something. Cause I'm like, I feel like I'm burning my relationship if I'm like, buy my thing, buy my thing. I need you right to on. do this. Um, so I, it feels like there's an aspect of being personable um, and being like nice and relatable and getting people to like, you know what? I'm, I'm going to support you. I like you. Um, and it's, it's just hard to find the balance of that. I think uh, social media is also can be very impersonal because you're just blasting stuff out into the ether and yeah. hoping that people latch on to it. And if you're not like hot take every other day, that's a little hard to like, yeah. <laughs> people don't want reasonable opinions and, and like, you're just plain commentary. So I, I still struggle with marketing. Um, I do best in person when I can talk to people and like tell a funny story or, you know, hand them a book and have them look through it or just have them see who I am and that I'm not like a machine, like <laughs> saying, I need you to buy this. I need you to buy this. Um, so yeah, probably just the personal aspect. That's all I can really say. Okay. So speaking about being a machine, what is the work area set up for Chris to just thrive? Oh, here we go. Uh, <laughs> How do you set yourself up? So I work in tech. So um, right now with the pandemic, I've been working from home. And mm -hmm. uh, my work set up before, because I wasn't really working from home. I was just playing video games. Uh, and then writing when I had the inspiration to write. Uh, which that's actually a very big part of it is um, for me, I can't force myself to write, uh, but I can read my own mood and the sort of waves of like, I need to capitalize on this right now. I feel like writing. I have a great idea. I was, I was in the shower and I was having some shower thoughts or I was driving. And I was having the sort of like, you know, I'm on autopilot. I'm having vacant thoughts. And so I get a lot of inspiration there. And then I'm like, I got to type this up. I got to type this up. And sometimes that's like laying in bed on my phone, cranking in some text. But like my actual setup for my desk used to be uh, just like, oh, I had an Amazon desk that was like had a little stand for my monitor. But uh, then I got three monitors. So I put that on an arm and, you know, the three monitors set up. Uh, and because I'm a gamer, I have like a gaming PC that I built. Uh, but with the pandemic, um, I was like, I added a whole table to the side that was just like, here's my microphone, here's my joysticks, here's my VR headset. Um, and it became too cluttered because they weren't actually connected. So I actually went during the pandemic to like um, uh, a place that sold old office desks and supplies and got one of those like legit corner desk things that you would see in an office building. Oh, bracket like an L-shape. <laughs> yeah, with like heavy duty metal um, filing cabinets on either side of it and like a lot of space underneath. And so then I got like one of those keyboard trays that like can lift and go under. 
so oh, I, I went way more professional, like after the pandemic, where I was like, I'm here all the time. I work from this desk. I write from this desk. Like I supervise the art. So it now I have a much better setup, and I got one of those um, secret lab chairs too, because uh, you know, sitting in a cheap IKEA chair for eight hours a day is very uncomfortable. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. You see, I got a whole couch. Yeah, I added it to my man cave. <laughs> yeah, I, had, I definitely had to do some upgrades on the, the work area uh, with the pandemic because I just like when I would go to work, um, I could go walk around, you know, I could just get up and do stuff. But when I was like, well, I can't go anywhere because pandemic and I, I could go to the living room, I guess, and work. That's exciting. <laughs> go to another part of the house and work. But uh, yeah, you know, and especially for me, like um, if I'm really trying to focus on writing or something like that, um, it's good that I now have a separate office um, that is just isolated. I can close the door, you know, I can close the blinds, I can do whatever I need to do. I can just focus on on writing for however long I need to. No. Okay. So the question that's been on my mind since before I even got on here and I was like, now I should ask it probably in the middle of the interview. <laughs> Rapture Burgers. How did you come up with the name Rapture Rapture Burgers? Oh yeah, yeah. So naming things is hard. <laughs> so uh, way back when uh, when we were coming up with this, we we were like, what do we call this? We were like, Mad Mutually Assured Destruction. Nah, that's terrible. Uh, <laughs> we and and there's like Scott again. Scott Pilgrim was big. We were really into it, and we we're like, well, we can't do Camille versus the world. That's nah. That's too yeah. on the nose. Um, and we it was actually unnamed for a long time. We just didn't have a good name for it. But as I fleshed out the backstory of the world, um, again, I grew up in Oklahoma, and Oklahoma is in the Bible Belt. It's very religious. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I, had, I had a kind of a joke about um, in case of rapture, like, you know, that those bumper stickers in case of rapture, this car will be unmanned. Mm -hmm. uh, I had a little bit of a joke that was like, in case of rapture, this car will turn into a mobile uh, mobile burger joint or something like that. Okay. You know, the implication is like, no, I'll still be here. <laughs> um, I'll still be here. <laughs> uh, but, you know, that's not why we named it Rapture Burgers. That was like just a separate thing. Uh, what it what actually turned out to be was as I was fleshing out the world and the backstory, uh, we were saying it's set in a post-apocalypse, but what caused the apocalypse that basically ended the world? And, um, you know, it's common trope in sci-fi to have like a mega corporation. Uh, right. Like Blade Runner has a mega corporation. Um, yeah, so branching off from that, we were like, Rapture Corporation. How about that? Um, because it has that ominous sound to it. Rapture Corporation. Who would, who would call their company like Rapture? And mm -hmm. um, so we started to build that up into it's a mega corporation that's like a combination of Walmart and um, let's say Raytheon or one of those mm -hmm. like military defense contractors, where they have their hands in everything. And uh, what we wanted to do was have this sort of ominous mega corporation looming over everything um, as you start to, like, as the world gets built out as like, uh, you know, Rapture Corporation Mall, a their fast food chain, which is called Rapture Burgers, of course, mm. because Rapture Corporation mm. came down to Rapture Burgers. Uh, 
And um, then as we wrote the story, it was also that there is a part of the story where Camille ends up working for Rapture Burgers and almost the, it's kind of a, almost a pivotal moment where mm-hmm. he starts to suspect the Rapture Corporation, the owner of the Rapture Burgers franchise, is actually trying to conquer the world and the, my, they're my competition. And, and that's a little bit what actually sets off the main plot. Okay. And um, so we were like, yeah, I mean, Rapture Burgers is a catchy name. It's a strange name that mm-hmm. people remember a lot of the time. Um, but it, it also, um, now that we're doing it as a manga, feeds into a little bit of the like, why is it called Bleach? Tell me that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that is a, that is a fact because i still don't understand that <laughs> yeah but we had a little bit more um as we got into it a little more connective tissue of there's this rapture corporation looming over everything camille ends up working for their subsidiary rapture burgers again which is an ominous sounding name and all that stuff mm-hmm. um and it it launches off this whole quest eventually that camille goes on Okay. Okay. Yeah. I was like, as soon as I saw it, I was like, all right. So <clears throat> when you sent me the link or whatever to the stream, I mean, to the stream, uh, to the um, Kickstarter and I, I got on the Kickstarter and I was like, okay, this looks really dope. And then I was looking at the art and everything like that. And I was like, Rapture Burgers. I was like, huh? I was like, <laughs> why? I was like, why? I was, and I was really trying to wonder why. And then I, I read the, the um, preview of the 30 and I was like, dang, that didn't explain it. That didn't explain that it yet. Explain I was like, it. <laughs> I was like, I was like so I need to ask him. That's going to be one of the main questions. Yeah, there's a, there's a quick glimpse in, in the preview of the city being blown up. There is a Rapture Burgers with like a burger and stuff on it. Mm-hmm. But that still doesn't explain to you. Why is there a place called Rapture Burgers? Like, why does that exist? <laughs> yeah, but, so yeah. that was pretty much what it was. I was like, okay, I definitely got to ask. How do you come up with this name and everything like that? Because, like you said, naming things, poof, it, it can be tough. <laughs> it can really yeah, be tough. Yeah. And this was well before the, the the habit of like light novels that get adapted in anime series doing long names. Like that time I got reincarnated as a slime, or, you know, <laughs> yeah. those super long names where you're like, really? That's the name of this show? The long name. Uh, I got reincarnated. At, I died and I got reincarnated as an Aristocat. I was like, what <laughs> like what what is this uh another one is um science science made me fall in love oh i fell in love yeah. and i science to prove it or something like that and i'm like what yeah <laughs> like, a lot of those, um, like you know and some of them make sense like ah oh, it's not my fault i'm not popular all right sure that's fine yeah that, that makes sense <laughs> but we've um you know part of pitching um uh, trying to get it picked up as an animated show is also acknowledging like you know if we had to of course we would change the name like if it came down to it if that was like all right we'll pick it up as an animated show but we got to change the name like we can't allude to rapture which has a a religious allusion to it Uh um and to be fair uh adam in particular went to a christian university and knows a surprising amount and so there is some like non-blasphemous like references and understanding of Christianity mixed in there mm. um, for thematic elements and stuff like that. Okay. Um, like some of the towns are named in a way that if you know the deep cuts, you'll recognize <laughs> it's, it, you know, there's, there's a little bit of stuff that like, of course we want to put parts of ourself or parts of our experience uh, in the story, in the world. 
Mm. Uh, even if it's just a little nod to us and and people who think like us. Yeah. Okay. Okay, that makes sense because I know you put a little few a few elements of your own thinking into the story, so that's something that just happened naturally. Yeah. And um, I didn't put any of the art of the original up there because I, you know, this really is a totally separate thing. But mm. we did um, we did have conversations about the races of the main characters because, um, and you know, in some cases, when you ask somebody to design a character just from scratch, depending on their leaning, their preference, mm. it just you know the default in America is like, oh, you know, a white character, depending on who's drawing the character. Yeah, and uh, we had a little bit of that in the original where it was like, eh, just design the character, or he's based on this guy. Mm-hmm. Um, but this time around, we did think more about what what makes the most sense and who do we want to represent in a way that is like meaningful. Because you know, sure, we could be forced because it was asked. Like, could you make Camille black? Mm-hmm. And so I had to give them the real answer of like, nah, that's not mm-hmm. that doesn't make sense from a story point of view. That doesn't make sense from a social point of view to me. That's not the story that I'm trying to tell. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm trying to make a point here, and this is the point I'm trying to make. Yeah. And um, but you know, it was sort of like, okay, well, what about like Rose? What about Devlin? What about Sydney? What about Alex? Like all these other characters, and think about. And it's not like somebody said justify your choice on their race, mm-hmm. but you know, if you have the chance to redo it and looking back and saying like. You know, to be fair, they just defaulted to white for this reason or whatever. It was too late to change it by the time we got to it. Um, so, you know, we we definitely wanted more representation this time around where it wasn't like our whole entire main cast is just white people. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah get some representation in there. And then, I mean, you know, that representation for what you wanted to do and what you were trying to drive home without hindering your story and things like that which is yeah and and i think sometimes people get caught up in the idea that like it was mandated or it's forced diversity but it's like you realize that uh i'm a black person writing a story and that like maybe my default image of a character is not white and that Mm -hmm. i i won't like i want to have a good reason for why do I do? Why would I default to white for this character? Why would I default to that? And um, mm-hmm. so anyway, you know, we just we talked about it before we started this version of it, and um, as we were redesigning characters, there's this there's this outstanding question that comes up a lot on Twitter recently about why aren't there more black characters in Japanese media? And like, you know, they know black people exist. Why don't mm-hmm. they put them in their media? And it's sort of a complicated and unfortunate answer that you know it's just like yes there are black people in japan yes they know we exist but culturally speaking we don't have an influence there and if you talk to some of the artists and like authors in japan they think about the japanese audience first Mm -hmm. and that's all they care about because like a prime example is like uh conventions right Conventions are a big place where fans show up. Uh, so El- Sir, um, San Diego Comic-Con, at its peak, I think it had maybe 130,000 people show up. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Japan, one of their big conventions, 750,000 people show up. 
Sheesh. So in a way, it's like saying they don't really need our money, but it's also understanding that like when it's brought to America, when it's brought to the West, it's done by the publishing company after the fact. Like there are only a few things like Funimation is now actually getting into helping produce some of these shows. Like mm -hmm. Fire Force was co-produced by Funimation and Fire Force has a surprising number of black characters in it. Yep. It's just great. Um, mm -hmm. But it's a little bit to say that like until they're making something for the international audience, like with us in mind, there's a low chance that they'll bother because mm. uh, their number one priority is like, uh, Japanese nerds who are fickle and can be kind of assholes sometimes about things. And this is, you know, talking with the Japanese people that I work with, it, it's just sort of like a complicated, like, there's not an easy answer. We would love it if they would give us more representation, mm. but they don't listen to people from the outside a lot of the time, these artists. And just trying to get that influence all the way back up the chain to where they're like, understand you have a lot of fans who are black mm -hmm. and who are non because the jet, I mean, the characters aren't white technically, they just have yeah. pale skin or they have see-through skin <laughs> on the page. Yeah. And at, at one point I was told like, yeah, but if you don't put a, a screen tone on their skin, anybody can imagine themselves as that character. No, that's not how it works. Yeah. There's a there's a little bit of lack of understanding, a little bit of like willful willful ignorance, mm -hmm. and I, you know it's a slow progress. You know, there's mm -hmm. more representation now than there was in the '90s, and hopefully sure. it continues to increase. But more uh, representation and better representation. Because yeah, and better representation. Mm -hmm. They don't look like caricatures, you know. Yeah. Mr. Pope but Pope. you know, some of this goes <laughs> back to, and this is just like whole bunch of social issues but like the american media that got fed to japan mm -hmm. like you know what 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 media do you think got exported it was like our big biggest movies with all of our white stars mm -hmm. so like you know the default image of america is blonde haired blue eyed you know all that stuff yeah so it, it's, it's just like it's sort of a complicated answer that there's no easy solution to um, and I w and for me, working directly with the Japanese artist, I can influence that. I mm -hmm. can say, I want this main character to be black. I want Rose mm -hmm. to be black. And that started a whole conversation about like, how do you make a black character cute? How do you like depict different aspects of like, you could call them racial identifiers or something like that. And mm -hmm. like, wait, do all black people have like big wiry hair? And, you know, if you come at it as, like, that's racist. This, yeah. It's like, they don't understand. They, you have to explain. You have to be patient. Mm -hmm. And so we got to a good point where we were able to show, like, design characters like Rose and Devlin. And uh, there's a character named Jack-Jack. And do it in a way where it didn't look offensive. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it was a learning process. Yeah understandable and it's good that y'all are even like being patient and going through the the ups and downs and the woes of that you know what i'm saying with your artists and just figuring it all out um i i love the representation that you have in this book that you know what i'm saying where that you do have in it and then i love the fact that like how you said you were like well if this person is going to be mischievous and taking over the world world domination it would have been nipped in the bud per se for a black character, whereas a white character, you see all the things that they can get away with. 
and I was all yeah. like, I, 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 I like that. Like, yeah, and it's play. it's like, n- not only do I not want people to be like, yeah, that would never happen, but mm-hmm. it's also like if you're doing sort of a villain anti-hero, you're like, mm, I don't want people to look up to him, and I don't want this to be the representation that we get of like a black main character where people right. are like. I want to be like Camille. Like, nah, don't be like Camille. The point is yeah. to not be like Camille. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I like that. I like that. Um, so you're in, um, you have the Pacific time zone. So you're in California. What part of California are you in? Yeah, I'm in LA. Oh, okay. So you're in the big part. <laughs> you're in the nice part. Yeah. Um, so um, how often do you go to comic conventions, things like that? How often are you slated for a table at a convention and everything like that how is that journey yeah so um because i haven't had a product to sell in a little while mm-hmm. um i actually we actually tried to get a table down in dallas at akon uh which is happening in a few weeks mm-hmm. but unfortunately like after the pandemic and stuff they they had more applicants than expected so we didn't get a table okay. um i would like to go to la comic-con again but uh, a lot of this comes down to like, you know, I don't mind paying the $300 or whatever for a table, but do I have a product to sell or am I just there to market? Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I a little bit have to figure out like what my plan going forward is. Cause I had actually timed this Kickstarter in hopes of being able to go exhibit at a convention while it was going. Mm-hmm. Cause like I said, I'm much better in person at like, sell you this, I wanna get you to, to do something. Mm-hmm. Um, so lately, uh, I've attended a few of them. Like I'll attend AX sometimes, Anime Expo here in LA. I'll attend LA Comic Con and go look around. Um, but going forward, probably LA Comic Con will be the number one like convention that I try to exhibit at. Right. Um, just because, like you know, it's here in LA. I still have to pay thirty dollars for parking, but I don't have to get a hotel. Yeah, and um, they're starting to draw like a hundred some odd thousand people now, so it's big. I'm sure. How about to say LA? <laughs> yeah, because um, you you just mentioned Dallas, and that's where I'm located. So when you oh, were saying yeah. that, I was like, oh shoot! If you were in Dallas, I would have definitely tried to yeah. show up. <laughs> Acon is like um, uh, they said in 2019 they drew like 38,000 people. So like going in, I was like, it'll be smaller, but it would be good to get back into the habit of like let's go exhibit at a convention and set up our table. But uh, yeah, it's unfortunate that I won't be able to make it there this time. But um, LA Comic Con is happening, I think, in December now instead of October. Mm-hmm. So I have a lot of time to prepare for that, and hopefully, I'll be able to go. Um, but yeah, like lately, my my main goal is like I want to get this book made so I can put it in people's hands. Like, yep. my my first accomplishment is get it finished, and then mm-hmm. I will try to sell the hell out of it as, as hard as I can. Yep. And, you know, sort of to that end, that's what this Kickstarter is for, is to, like, accelerate us and give us a good deadline and, and like, a good reserve fund to do all this. Because um, now that we have uh, Mimi on as an assistant, we're doing things like um, uh, pre-rendering backgrounds in 3D that can be drawn over or redrawn. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, doing props, like, there's a space elevator again. There's vehicles. There's, like, hard props that are that are things that take a lot of time to draw as backgrounds and so we're trying to optimize our our workflow a lot by by doing this and um so the, the kickstarter is really about that is 
uh, getting us some pre-orders, giving us some extra funds to really crank it up. Um, because my hope is that within a year we'll we'll like have the rest of this volume finished, which is about 300 pages, and then I'll be able to get it printed and all that stuff and and like be able to have it in hand. Man, so yeah, a volume for 300 pages—that's a lot, man. So you you really cracked it, cranked it out, and that's that's really dope that I you put that much effort and my, my much work and it's getting built and presented for everybody to see and everything like that as in the hard copy so that's actually yeah really i'm i feel like now we finally had enough to show because we have like 126 pages in various states of completion mm-hmm. um and i felt like we have enough that is like detailed and toned and like done done that i can show and it's like visually impressive stuff mm-hmm. it's not just like characters talking it's like I mean, you know, it's a little gratuitous to throw like a robot fight in there, but like it's a little bit of an art flex to show off like this is what you can expect. Yeah. This is the sort of quality that we're we're aiming for. Yeah. That's and that's what that's what's so dope about your Kickstarter. And because I've seen other Kickstarters where it's kind of just like, hey, this is what we got. And they <laughs> just kind of leave it, <laughs> they just kind of leave it like that, where you put so much detail into making sure that you fleshing out and showing people what they can look forward to. And, you know, even you even gave us a, a 30 uh, page, you know, sample and everything like that. And it's just like, it's really dope. And then you gave us like the color panels. Um, it's a lot of stuff that you did on your Kickstarter that gave some individuality that other people don't have. Um, so I, I really liked your Kickstarter a lot. Just even looking at it and exploring it and stuff. Yeah, like I that. appreciate it. We, we're, <laughs> We'd spent a lot of time in advance, like, because I was going to launch this Kickstarter like three months ago, but then I was like, ah, I want more to show. Like, I don't feel like we have enough to show for what we've been doing. And I want like a special splash art just for this that gives you a little bit of an idea. Like, because we talked about how do you communicate the premise and an image, mm-hmm. um, which is hard to do. Like, we looked at like Blue Exorcist, and I'm like, it doesn't explain the premise, but it tells me like it's a battle shown in because people. There are kids with weapons in poses. That's right. what I get from that. Yeah. And um, so we we did have a lot of conversations about how do we want to present this? What's maybe the best way to market it and to show it? And so a lot of a lot of work did go into just trying to get a Kickstarter because we like rushed to finish all those pages to show. And mm-hmm. even the thirty page preview, we were like, should we should we put that much out there? Like, mm-hmm. I don't know, maybe. Maybe that's too much to show. And we're like, you know what? That's like 10% of the book. That's not a sub- substantial amount. Like, Yeah, and it's enough to hook you in and make you want more. Because I definitely was like, I need more of this. <laughs> yeah, I, I hope so. And, you know, on my part, the decision to make this a 60-day campaign was conscious because uh, even motivating my friends and family who have been following this for a long time, people are busy like the social situation in america is constantly changing so it's a little bit like it's taken weeks for some of them to get around to like yeah i'm gonna support it i'll do it yeah i'll do it and so i i also wanted the time to like ramp back up to be able to promote because you know it'd been a while since i'd done interviews or really talked about it so i'm like this is me exercising the muscle again and getting back and, and then hopefully, like, I'll be able to go out and um, even if I just have to go to Little Tokyo in L.A., I'm going to start handing out postcards. Just hey. like, check out my Kickstarter, guys. Need you to check out my Kickstarter. 
Hey man, that's dope. That's then that's that's part of the marketing thing. That's part of that marketing grind. It's like ah, I got to get out here in these streets, <laughs> get get out here and hand out stuff and. Man, I was talking about like, you know what? Maybe I'll go to Akon anyway with just like a bunch of business cards and postcards. Like, here you go. Here you go. If you go, because I, I know I'm going to be at Fan Expo as well um, on the 18th uh, nah. next month. The next month, uh, I guess Father's Day weekend is what it is. And um, we're supposed to be there. Uh, the Ip Mob crew is going to be there. At a, we're doing a panel and everything like that. So oh, yeah. we're, we're doing the same grind. It's just like, man, all right, here we go. Yeah. <laughs> hey guys <laughs> and it's like man you're just hoping that you know what i'm saying it would be easier and they would just come to you but like you said earlier yeah. that's not how it works <laughs> you yeah it is not, if you build it they will come it's like if you build it you got to get a giant billboard <laughs> to tell people <laughs> you built it yeah so but um um now that we we kind of like touched on everything um I, I, I and I do remember you you brought up your big gaming computer and everything like that. So what are some games that Chris is playing right now? Uh, Super Robot Wars Thirty because uh, okay. big. I don't know if you can see this. Big Gundam fan. Oh okay okay. I about to say you see I got my green login. Yeah <laughs> yeah. So I've been playing uh, some Super Robot Wars, which. Okay. Um, strategy rpgs are fun like i played uh, disgaea a lot back in the day but uh mostly it's for the, the animations man like you're like this this three minute long animation of just like destroying this other robot i was like yeah yeah that's what i needed today <laughs> <laughs> but um i was also playing uh i beat elden ring um, you did already yeah a while back yeah like sometimes games um, I have this problem where like I'll buy a game and I'll play it for like two hours. And I'm like, it's not that fun. Mm -hmm. It's not addictive level fun. Like it's not like I want to stay up late at night or skip work to play this game. Mm -hmm. But Elden Ring sort of hit that um, that that sort of feeling, and mostly because it was hard. Like I played Sekiro mm -hmm. as well, and that one I liked for the setting, for the combat style, and because it was hard. Mm -hmm. But Elden Ring. It was just that thing of like, oh no, I'm gonna try 20 times to beat this guy. Like, <laughs> yeah. I will, I will finish this. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, 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 I went so hard on grinding and just exploring that mm -hmm. I like I buffed up uh, dexterity only almost, and I was like, you know, using the uh, Moon Veil or even before that, I was just on the starter katana for a long, long time, mm -hmm. and I just got to the point where I could one hit a lot of stuff because I. I just spent so much time just like wandering, exploring, uh, clearing dungeons and stuff like that. Okay. So by the time I got to the end, I was like, oh, that wasn't that bad. <laughs> yeah. that, that's just how I, I'm the same way. If the game is challenging, the more harder it is, the more I'm going to play it. And that's that's kind of how I get addicted to a game just because I'm like, oh, they keep beating me. So now I got to get good. I got to keep going and get yeah. better. And there, like, there are other types of games that I get hooked on to. Um, it's just sort of hit or miss sometimes. Like, I was playing the the Yakuza series. Like, um, mm -hmm. I started Yakuza Zero, and I was like, you know, this is an all right game. It's you know, mm -hmm. you get to explore a part of Japan. Uh, and then I was like, all right, maybe I'll try the new Yakuza game that just like the brand brand new one. Mm -hmm. And that one feels more like a movie. And so I'm like watching it as I play it. And I'm like, yeah, this is interesting. This is addressing some social issues that you don't normally see. Mm -hmm. uh, 
but then I just got distracted with like, eh, but Super Robot Wars. I could <laughs> watch some Gundams and super some old Japanese robots blow stuff up. Mm. Uh, and the funny thing is, I'm on like fast forward for most of that game because I'm like, mm. the dialogue isn't voiced and it's all like. Oh no, this villain from this old series that I have never watched is like terrorizing the part of the world. Let's go stop him. And I'm like, yeah, whatever. Just put me on the battlefield already. <laughs> yeah, that that's pretty much like like you said, man. Anything that's challenging and stuff like that, I go back to it. I I go play it again. Um Cuphead, I I, I play Cuphead like oh, yeah. over and over and over because I'm like, all right, I ain't played in like a year. Let me see. And then you don't have that rhythm anymore. So you suck again. And it's just like, I yeah. got to get back to it. <laughs> the one for me that, that does that is a uh, fury. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I beat that game a few different times. Now they're like, Ooh, DLC for a new main character you can play as. Mm -hmm. uh, but I also like that one. I mean, for the music, for the story, because oh. it was slowly revealing like, Oh, Oh, you're this like cosmic terror. That is the villain. Oh, cool. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, it's, it's love. I love that. And I played uh, I played Breath of the Wild on like oh, yeah. the hard, hardest mode and things like just playing games like that and just going back to them because like once you get into a rhythm and you start to breeze through a game, but then if you put it down for like six months or something like that, you lost your rhythm and you're jumping back in. You're like, man, I don't remember this game being so hard. And then yeah. <laughs> that's that's yeah. what I love to do, man. I, I love to play like games that were challenging. And then get back to them. So I understand what you mean by the addicting part. Yeah, yeah, and I it's it's hard sometimes because sometimes the story will grip me for the story because I want to see what happens. But you know, it feels like I'm wasting money sometimes. But I'm glad Steam has a refund policy now because I'm like, I tried it for two hours. It's less than two weeks. Ah, mm -hmm. I'm gonna return it. It's not for me. <laughs> it's not for me. It's fine. Like it's very pretty. Um, but like a game that I started and just never finished was like Horizon Zero Dawn. Like I got, yeah. I'm probably three quarters of the way through and it is challenging mm. and I'm playing it on PC. So I'm like, I can just play it whenever, but I just, uh, some reason it didn't like click with me Yeah. where like Ghost of Tsushima on the other hand, like I beat it. I played all the way through it. I, I played mm. on a harder difficulty and everything because, mm. you know, terrorizing Mongols is fun. <laughs> it turns out. Yeah. Uh, but that yeah. one is also like, you know, I have a I have a bunch of Criterion Collection Blu-rays of like old samurai movies, and I, I practice Japanese swordsmanship. Like, so the there's a deeper level of appreciation. Oh yeah, those are <laughs> those are for use swords that I actually use for um, class, and and we do target cutting. Oh, okay, okay, yeah. So um, that's pretty like goes to Shishima's dope um i did i'm like you i have horizon zero Dawn, and i think i've played about six hours worth to, to play through yeah. it just wasn't my cup of tea um game another game detroit almost human oh, i yeah. love that one just because of the different scenarios where it's like ah, i failed to get that different unlock this different tree or whatever of different scenarios <laughs> and i just keep going back and it's and between that one and hitman Oh man, I gotta oh, figure man, out how. Man. Yeah, how am I gonna kill this dude this way? And I, and just, I don't think I, I like. I have uh, Hitman and maybe Hitman Two, and they're fun just for sandboxes. And I don't think I beat either of them, but they're. I occasionally go back just for that. Like, I can do anything I want. I can just like beat people and like hide bodies. <laughs> 
it's yeah. it's actually really fun yeah yeah those those one those are the games that i like really like to try to mess around with and then like the smaller games um i don't know if you ever played we happy few which was like a smaller game but it's like a dystopian. Familiar, but i don't think i played it it's a dystopian type world or whatever yeah. like they take these pills called joy to make them be happy uh, but it's really after like a big bomb so like one do like when you don't take your joy people can notice you know what i'm saying yeah. that you're not on drugs and he was like he took his pill but he ran out because he's poor so he didn't have enough money to pay for him and like they bust the pinata and they're all eating candy and then the joy wore off and then you see they're just eating rat guts and it's like Ooh. yo yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's really crazy it's a crazy game like yeah. I, I love games like that too yeah, for a while I was on a really big indie game kick just because, like, they're usually more contained storylines. Uh, I mean, they're cheaper, too, but the a lot of the AAA games feel like they have to justify their price and their the time spent on them by, like, padding them out with 60 hours of content or side quest everywhere. And, yeah, you just kind of get tired of the same, like, game mechanics over and over. So like I was playing um like Enter the Gungeon was a lot of fun when that was out. Roguelite games I, I liked for a, a while, but I started to to cool off on those a little bit. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um but yeah, um so we got some gaming conversation from you trying to pick some more <laughs> of your brain just to have some fun. Um but so I guess we I'll just ask this and then we can kind of wrap up. Um what are like some of your favorite uh you you mentioned mech, so I'm assuming mecha is like your your baby, like your fave, or what's your favorite genre anime wise? And then whenever whatever your favorite anime genre is, we can just ask what's some of your favorite anime from that genre. Yeah, mecha is definitely way up there. Uh and like Yeah, that's just like I was building Gundam kits when I was like fourteen and stuff when Gundam Wing was big in America. Mm-hmm. Uh, something about it really clicked, and uh, but as I started to explore the genre more, mm-hmm. like you know, I, I went back and watched all the like Universal Century Gundam stuff, and it's a solid franchise. It is like the Star Trek of Japan. You know, mm-hmm. there's a lot of good stuff in there. Um, uh, pr- but probably up there uh, among the highest is like Gunbuster, because mm-hmm. I really like sci-fi stories. And I really like time dilation. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a story that is about like time dilation. And it has giant robots. But honestly, what I appreciate more is the sort of tragic story of someone going out into space and like time passing differently for uh, other people on Earth and the, the, the dynamics of that. Um, so that that's probably up there as like one of my top like mecha anime type things that I'm like, you know, it has some things that I wouldn't recommend for other people, but it's like, man, I love that story. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I gotta check that out. I know for me, I'm still freshly treading the line of a uh, uh, mecha. I know some mechas, and then like I've missed out on a lot of them. Where like a lot of people that are mecha fans, they're like, oh, you need to watch this. You need to watch this. You need to yeah. Watch this. <laughs> Ava obviously is a big one, but that was again, it wasn't good because of the giant robots. It was good because like psychological drama and story and all that stuff. Fair enough. Uh, I'm gonna make sure to take that down. <laughs> but that turns out to be the case with most mecha 
stories is that it's not the giant robots that make it good. It's the the human story, or Politics. the use, the fact that the robot is being used for uh, military purposes. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, so sort of in that vein, I'm like, yeah, I, I don't, I don't get down with the Transformers because I'm like sentient robots, nah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, I like the politics and everything that comes with it. Um, yeah. I know we we I don't know if this is like a legit argument and where you stand on this, but they they I've seen people have the argument that Attack on Titans, Attack on Titan is a a a, a meat robot. Flip. They're like they're like oh these are these are they're like bio robots a little bit. Yeah, and they're like yeah. There's a blurry line because <laughs> they they just have some of the same um same characteristics as whereas politics heavy politics military aspects and things like that right so i didn't know where you necessarily stood on that but i thought i'd have this conversation with you because i know like a lot of people do those comparisons and i don't know if they're just doing it for devil's advocate or if they actually <laughs> if they actually mean it <laughs> yeah i have to keep it short because i'm going to run out of power here but um oh. yeah i there's a strong argument for that because the titan sort of grows around them and they end up in the nape of the neck but they are biological mm -hmm. and they are basically brought about by almost magic so it's sort of a weird like you can feel the influence of the mecha genre like you can feel the influence of gundam maybe a little bit in it mm -hmm. but it's also then a hybrid that goes off in its own direction and because like you know there's only one mecha show that I can think of that involved actual physical humans trying to fight robots with like hand weapons and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Everything else is about like, we use giant robots to fight aliens or we fight each other in giant robots. So I mm -hmm. think it's, I can see the influence, but it's definitely not mecha. It doesn't count. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. <laughs> it doesn't count. <laughs> <laughs> well, all right. So I know you said you're running low on power. Um, would you like to, talk about anything plug everything that you would like to plug before we get up yeah um yeah it's mostly you know please check out the rapture burgers kickstarter you know we're an independent team of diverse folks you know trying to make something very original and um we have rewards from physical versions like a hardback copy too uh we also have like a meeting with the team one of our team members uh was the supervising art director on uh, multiverse of madness and has some nice. stories to tell let me tell you <laughs> uh but uh you know we also have little perks like shirts and hats but for the most part we we just want people to to look at us and support us and read our book when it comes out okay i'll make sure to uh plug all the kickstarter information and everything like that into the show notes so everybody can know where to find it i'll make sure to put your uh social media plugs as well in the uh, show notes so when people are listening to this episode they can click the links and make sure you guys support um chris's um kickstarter for rapture burgers because it's shaping out to be a really great story from what i saw in the preview so i i'm sure he's got more to tell so you guys make sure you do that thank you guys for listening thank you chris for pulling up and you yeah, know saying, you. doing an interview with us as well and um on that note we will get see you guys on the next one